creating queer education content for the TikTok generation, their journey with neurodivergence and being a reckless optimist with content creator and educator, Rudy Jean Rigg. We're Jasmine and Maggie and you're listening to Culture Club. This is our monthly interview with a person we find interesting and that we think you will too. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people as the traditional custodians of this land where we are grateful to live, work and record this podcast. We would like to pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that acknowledgement to any First Nations people listening today. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Today, we welcome creator, educator and host Rudy Rigg. Based in Nam, Melbourne, Rudy is the iconic non-binary creative and presenter that's been schooling us on the queer education we wish we had when we were younger. Rudy is set on rewriting the false narratives about the LGBTQIA plus community through co-creating Rainbow History Class, co-writing the TikTok documentary Transathletica, taking on the role as ABC's queer respondent, as well as being a major fashion and beauty inspiration. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rudy. Can you please tell us more about yourself and your background and how do you explain what you do to someone you've just met? (laughs) Um, Well, so for a job, I guess you could say that I am a creator. I'm not an influencer in that I'm not kind of doing marketing for brands or, you know, user-generated content and stuff like that. I create things for a living and it's as simple as that, right? Um, so explaining that to people isn't super hard. I think they just don't understand what takes up my time. So that's when it's like I explain all the things that I have to do in a day, right? And then people go, oh, and I'm like, yeah, going to events and premieres and things is on top mm. of it. It's on top of everything. That's not my job. Um, and <laughs> so, right. And so, I don't know, for me, I just say I make things. It's it's so, because I don't know what I'm making all the time in that, you know, I could be doing one thing right now and it could be something written or I'm in pre-production doing creative development for something and then, in the afternoon I'll go and I'll be hosting something or uh, in six months I'll be on set for, you know, a, a documentary. So I kind of pin myself down. So yeah. that's kind of how I go about it. But yeah. So fun. Every day must be so different doing all sorts of stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every day is different, um, which I love, which I love. Very cute. I watched your vlog on YouTube just the other day. It was from a little while back but you were doing a photo shoot Um I think it was for Rainbow History class and you just had like the most jam-packed few days was when you were seeing Tame Impala. Sorry, just (laughs) reciting your life back to you. Um, But it is really cool to see, I guess, the breadth of what you do when you're not limited to just one thing. And I mean... We wanted to bring you on because we have also been massive fans of Rainbow History Class for the longest time. Yeah, in back in 2021, you were named Best Creator on TikTok for Rainbow History Class and the page has almost half a million followers, which is wild. Mm. So can you tell listeners who might not be as familiar with Rainbow History Class about the origin story? <laughs> yeah, so Rainbow History Class is the queer and trans history don't get in school and um, it is is really kind of about filling in our our history and teaching our community and allies um, bite-sized pieces of 
our, our story. Um, and I co-create it with uh, Hannah McElhenney, who does 99.9% of the writing and researching, which leaves me to host and edit and um, do the socials and, and things like that. And, you know, it's grown from a, a TikTok channel to being on every platform, having a Snapchat discovery show to having a live show now, which we're doing for World Pride, um, mm. to Hannah writing a book, uh, you know, so it's it's definitely grown over just, well, it'll be two years actually in March this year. So um, it's, yeah, it's incredible and it's really accessible. That's what we try and make it because, uh, you know, a lot of the texts and pieces of information that we're sourcing from is heavy and it's dense and it's academic and we want to sort of unpick that and create something that's easy for people to to learn from. Um, how did you and Hannah meet? Because it's a really lovely group you've got over at Rainbow History class and I want to know. <laughs> oh, look, I think it's it's less exciting than I think it could have been in maybe an alternate universe. But Hannah and I just like met on the internet. Like, like do you know what I mean? Like it's it's it wasn't like we sort of saw each other from across a room at a networking event. Like, <laughs> like it was just on, it was, it was like on Instagram or something. And I remember the first time I met her and my, my talent manager, um, Jamie, who wasn't my ta- talent manager at the time. Uh, you know, he was, he was with Hannah when we met and he was like, Oh, do you guys like know each other? And we were like, no, this is like the first time we're meeting. Uh, so, you know, we definitely just clicked in. We have the same brain, but not. And so it works really well, I think. Uh- <laughs> I love that. And also, can I just say, Jazz actually, Jazz and I actually met by like locking eyes at a networking event. So, no! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my God, see, so you know how it is then. It's like you either yeah. get that or you get the random like, thing that you clicked on Instagram and, you know, changed the course of your life. Like, you know, um, which saying it that way sounds more dramatic than my first rendition of it. But, um, you know, see, things like that do happen. Like it's, it's, it's not, it's not out of reality. Yeah. And I want to know being in front of the camera, the way you are, we, have you always been confident and comfortable in front of a camera and growing up, was that career path something that you envisioned Mm. and what were you doing before Rainbow History class. Mm. So this is a funny thing. Like I have always been confident in front of a camera. Um, You know, what I spent my time on from truly like my early, like like as soon as I could write, I was writing stories. I was writing film reviews. I had my first film review blog back when Blogspot was a thing when I was, I think I was 10 or 11. God knows how I had access to the internet, but I did. Um, And then for my 12th birthday, uh, I wrote an entire morning television show and made my friends um, act it out. Uh, And so and there's a famous line, which is so funny because, like, we have this line at Rainbow (laughs) History class now. It's it's called, like, um, we did a video about Jesus and whether he was – potentially home like gay and the line is like is Jesus gay um but the line that kind of kicked that off is like when I was little doing this like morning show with my friends it was like does ho 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 scare your children because I, I wrote this piece about like whether like Santas and shopping malls were scary or whether they were actually like a, a fun amusement piece at Christmas time anyway um oh so I've always done that I wrote like Spider-Man the musical like filmed it in my doll's house and my dad's camcorder like I mean, I, I've kind of been in and around cameras my whole life. Um, so for me, it's like second nature. Uh, but that being mm. said, I never considered myself a performer. 
or an entertainer. And, mm. and it wasn't really until Rainbow History Class was getting global attraction that I was like, oh, wait, I actually have like a natural inclination to actually develop the skills in those, like that area, mm. um, which I've done since since that kind of realisation. But yeah, I've always been this way. So And so did you go, like, did you graduate high school or uni and then just become a content creator straight away? No, no. I um, I have a degree in professional writing and editing and cinema studies. And during that degree, I I did do some media work. Like I, I hosted a live music um, like performance TV show on Channel 31, which was an opening channel at the time. Uh, and I had like three, three, two or three radio shows that I produced, hosted, directed, that sort of thing. Um, but after uni, I worked in retail for like four years. And I, you know, didn't make content, uh, to be honest, at all. I sort of used up all of my brain and bandwidth in uni. I I was fortunate enough to be able to, like, really double down on my special special interests at the time, which was, like, uh, superhero films and, like, comic uh, book adaptations into cinema and because that was really popular at the time with Marvel being this huge thing and... um, what else did I do? Like studying like global uh, adaptations of the vampire mythos in, in non-Western cinema. Very, very niche, oh, cool. right? Very niche. And so when I finished uni, I was like, I've written all this stuff. I poured my heart out, yeah. and, you know, like I got my Iron Man tattoo and I was like, I, I, I got to take a break. So I worked in retail to get some different skills in an industry I'd never worked yeah. in. Um, and I actually think I left a shift early to do a self-tape for Hannah for Rainbow History Class. Oh, wow. And yeah, 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 yeah. So I was, yeah. So, I mean, right up until the very last second, I, I was not making content until I was. Yeah, so interesting because I think like sometimes we can, especially with content creators and online stuff, there's like a bit of a an air of like overnight success mm-hmm. or like you just – fell into it but like I like hearing the backstory of like you had these skills and you did this degree at uni and then you had retail skills which are also really important and quite different Mm. and it's like culminated in you creating this in your you know early 20s mid-20s so yeah I think it's really interesting thank you for sharing no it's yeah I mean yeah I mean that being said I have made stuff my whole life you know like I've had many a failed YouTube channel I think the most successful YouTube channel I've ever had was where I would take, I think I was like 13 and I have a background in music and I would take requests to learn like, like scores from like movies by ear. <laughs> so wow. random, but people loved it. Um, wow. Yeah. And, but no, I, yeah. but that's the thing. You, it, there's a lot of people don't realize like while someone may gain like attention and views and, and engagement overnight, like that's for sure that happens. Um, you know, with, with a percentage of that demographic that do suddenly get, wow, like where have they come from? It's like they're probably not going to tell you about all of the times they failed, like right off the bat, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. or things that they've tried or, or, or like brainstorm sessions that they've had until they got to that point. And I just had to give a shout-out to that Spider-Man musical because <laughs> I just think how incredible that you've done just so much in your life already I am endlessly fascinated by you and now I'm just like oh my gosh like this is incredible like I can't believe you've done so much before we've even known you I guess now internet time if Mm. that makes sense um but anyway 
When this episode drops for our followers, it'll be World Pride and it'll be Mardi Gras. Um, and I want to know what does Pride mean to you and how are you celebrating it this year? Mm. I mean, that's the thing. I feel like what Pride means to me has sort of changed across the years. To You know, last year was my first time going to Mardi Gras. I really only felt a sense of belonging begin to form for me during last year's Mardi Gras and being able to sort of walk in the parade um, with TikTok and meet, uh, you know, a lot of different people from different intersections of the queer community. Um, so last year it really meant like a sense of belonging and feeling like I was understood or beginning to be understood or felt like, you know, at least felt like I was for sure. This year I think Pride to me really just is all about carrying the torch for the people that have come before me um, in a lot of senses. Like I'm talking about, you know, people who were on the front of the queer liberation movement back um, in the 60s and prior to the, the 60s. Um, it, you know, it's carrying the torch for, you know, people of colour who have lost their culture to colonisation and, um, you know, for people who are underrepresented, it's about carrying the torch for the intersection between being queer and being neurodivergent. And so, you know, I, I don't take for granted the voice that I have and the authority that I can command in, in this space. So um, mm. it's really important to sort of use my time, yes, to celebrate, but also to remember that, you know, the spotlight's on us and it, like I'm going to use it to sort of make sure that we can find ourselves in a better place this time next year as well. Yeah, 100%. And you've actually kindly brought your followers along on your gender identity journey mm. over the years. Can you tell us more about that and what it's like sharing such like a, a personal thing with the internet? Mm. I mean, I, look, it's been interesting because I think it's sort of taken a lot of like swings and roundabouts in terms of like I – have sort of learned along the way. It's funny because when people are sort of looking at you for advice or, um, you know, they've seen themselves in you, I sort of get a bit like concerned with what to share because I'm learning as well. And it's, it's, it's not that I'm like out there purporting misinformation because I'm not, absolutely not. But like one time I could be feeling a certain way and I'm like, oh, like that would, I know this would like touch a lot of people and, and you know, there's a lot of people that could empathise. But then I know for myself that I don't really want to go declaring anything until I'm 100% sure, which can mean that for me personally I can feel a little bit alone because all I want to do is kind of speak about it and see if anyone else feels the same way. But then also, again, I know that people look to me for advice and to see themselves and so I need to take a moment of thought behind what I put out on the internet to make sure that mm. um you know it's actually going to be of use to everyone so I don't really think that it's like a deeply personal thing I am like outwardly queer I look queer I you know am the first person to sort of point out maybe things that are homophobic and transphobic and that sort of stuff so for me it's like I've always been this way I actually don't care what people think so having it out on the mm -hmm. internet getting however many views is like whatever um it's been really good because you know I, I posted this video about um being autistic and and gender identity and how I learned that perhaps there's like an intersection 
between the two. And I was led by some really wonderful comments to sort of learn more about that, which has sort of led me to understanding myself in a different way than I did six, 12 months ago, which is, I think, fantastic. Um, So I think it's a mutual learning situation, which I love. Can you actually um, explain a bit more about what you learned about the intersection between autism and um, gender identity? Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah, like, I mean, it's it's incredible. And, and a lot of this is sort of um, community-led. It's, there's not a lot of studies on it. So I'm not sort of speaking from an academic point of view or a scientific point of view. But there's um, a large group of autistic people who either sort of experience it or have seen it you know around and about their own autistic community um in that for some reason there seems to be a higher rate of people who do not identify as cisgender who also happen to be autistic um so people are sort of saying by people i mean like autistic people are sort of saying that it's probably coming from the part of the autistic experience which is uh how we don't really sort of see the world in the same way and by that I mean I mean I'm going to really strip it back so it's like very simplistic so it's take it with a grain of salt because it's more nuanced than this but um everyone kind of knows the autistic stereotype of like thinking in black and white right Mm. and so one would think like oh well if autistic people think in black and white then how does the concept of being trans even exist because you know, the concept of thinking in black and white is sort of like uh, looking and seeing like, oh, like um, a dress, long hair, born and identified as a woman, therefore a woman um, or whatever. And that's true in some cases, but then there is that demographic that go, oh, well, um, I'm going to sort out these pieces of the puzzle differently and sort of create a like deduce or whatever, like a different outcome from it um, or just sort of disregard the boxes and shapes altogether and go like, fuck it, like <laughs> I'm making my own version of things because I don't understand your way of thinking, mm. um, which is kind of where I come from. Like I, I'm the kind of, I'm from the autistic yeah. experience of like this is arbitrary and stupid. Like I did, I'm not yeah. disregarding the gender binary. Mm. It's useful just like money is useful and it, it's meaningful and it, b- therefore it exists. I don't like to an extent, I don't disregard that. Um, but I'm from like the perspective of like, well, my autistic brain just goes, there is so much more than just like what you're wearing and and how long your hair is and like your anatomy. There's like, you know, mm. I don't know. I, does that even make sense? I don't know. This is like something I haven't really spoken about because it is hard to explain because you have to mm-hmm. contextualize the autistic experience, then you've got to contextualize gender, then you have to contextualize society. Mm. Like, you can see why this hasn't really been uh, explored widely because it's so mm. it's so in depth. Yeah. No, thank you so much for sharing that, Rudy, because we literally just put you on the spot and asked you to give us a thesis um, (laughs) on a Monday morning. Um, But that was, no, really helpful. And I'm sure some of our followers would really resonate with that as well. So appreciate you sharing that. What are your favourite things about being autistic and having ADHD as a creator? Mm. I think that it naturally lends itself to creativity and to being curious and to exploring things and looking at things in a way that 
you know, neurotypical people aren't, which I think is an advantage. Um, I think that it means that I get to sort of let my brain go wild, you know, like I hate math. I'm not great at math and that sort of logistical structured thinking I I just can't get. But when it comes to creating things, when it comes to uh, figuring out the best way to shoot a video or um, like what do we think people want to see or like what do we want to make and that sort of stuff, it's, it's so beneficial. It's so beneficial. Like, you know, I... I'm not medicated for ADHD, by the way. So like I'm running like, I'm just like raw dog in it. And so like I'm I'm truly just <laughs> wild out here, um, you know, but it has been a learning experience. Like I, I truly think that prior to realizing and being diagnosed with ADHD um, and finding out that I'm autistic, I, it was real, I was basically incapable of creating anything, basically incapable. I would write my, like, I would be obsessed with these things at uni, but like, I would write my, like, essays, like an hour before they were due. And thank God I'm a fast typer because it was a struggle. Wow. Um, so I really think that knowing this about myself has changed my life and it's been, it's, it's made it possible for me to actually create stuff and actually like it's it's like harnessing like you know what's that movie like mm-hmm. atlantis you know like when they like it's like the, they're powered by the crystals and like it's going like wild at the end and they have to like figure out how to like mm. harness the crystal without it blowing mm. up everything that's me and my brain <laughs> like, that's what i was dealing with before i knew um, that I was autistic and I had ADHD. Now we're like flying around on those like motorbikes that float in the air. Like we're good. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Were you diagnosed at the same time? No. So I was diagnosed with ADHD initially and no, sorry. Yes, I was. No. Well, okay. So I was diagnosed. I had a very unique diagnosis story, which, you know, it, we can talk about it if you want, but to put simply right now, I was diagnosed with ADHD in like the first hour and a half. Then the like two sessions later, three sessions later, I was diagnosed with having um, like being autistic. And then about a year, I don't know, a year later, maybe less, I was diagnosed with having OCD as well. So I got like the trifecta. Um, and yeah, so for me, it kind of came about at the same time. I think I my diagnosis was kind of easy. I really spent a long time trying to figure out who I was going to go see, who would be best for me. Um, you know, a classic, classic example. I, I, I brought in a huge binder of like um, diagnostic material that, that I'd like categorized. Mm-hmm. I like, you know, yes, I just meant, yeah. So I really, cause I knew I, you know, I just knew and I was like, I, yeah. I just want it like mm. to be believed by this medical professional because it is mm. hard for a lot of people out there, and I do believe I was very lucky. And was this all during uni? No, no. It? This was twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. Okay. Yeah, across twenty twenty. Quite recent. Mm. And mm. I had graduated uni in twenty eighteen. Wow. So you went all through like schooling and uni with a with having diagnosed. Oh yeah, yeah. The whole way. Oh, I had no, I had no idea. 
Yeah, I can see why the Atlantis like comparison makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> I love how you're talking about how, you know, your autism and ADHD fuels your creativity. Um, and I got to say, I think, I mean, I followed you for a while, but one of the things that stood out for me is your incredible style and how you experiment with beauty as well. Can you talk to us about your journey with this? Mm, I, it, you know, it's funny actually, because I, I remember, I, I remember you were, Maggie were one of the first like journalists and writers to sort of point that out to me. And I was really shocked initially because I was like, I didn't really consider myself noticeably stylish or, you know, like notable in that sort of way. Um, so it was a really huge compliment. So thank you. But um, oh, for me, I, <laughs> for me, I, I, this is a thing. And I've had a funny journey with style um, in the, again, like with most things about myself, I'm just like chronically unapologetic. Like I've just always done my own thing. Like I don't, I pay attention to trends. Like I love trends. To me, it's so satisfying to like forecast like trends and sort of dive into it and all that kind of thing. But for me, I sort of always just dress how I want. In terms of like now as an adult, like nearing my 30s, which is terrifying. Not really. I, you know, I shouldn't, I'm sorry to all of the later millennials. I, I formally apologize <laughs> for that comment. Um, but no, like I dress now for nothing I wear is uncomfortable. Like nothing down to my socks, my shoes. Nothing I wear is uncomfortable. Everything has been engineered or spe- like particular like specifically picked for comfortability uh and I think that comes across with my my beauty you know you you'll only really find me in like a hugely like editorial like cover-up makeup full face of foundation at a shoot or if it's an event and my skin for some reason is like a cherry tomato beforehand um and I think that comes across in the sort of stylistic choices I make with my makeup like for example like my inner corner eyeshadow looks that I often do uh, I'll, I'll spill the goss here I only do it because I have really dark under eyes and I haven't uh, mastered the way of color correcting concealer yet and so I just slap on bright colors and glitter to hide it and it works and I can see why people love it um, you know so it's all about comfortability for me and, and I love playing with, I just love playing with style. That's why, like, I'm sort of like a chameleon, you know, because I tried for the longest mm-hmm. time to find a personal style and I realised that my style is inherently tied to how, stim- like, overstimulated or understimulated I am, um, what activities I'm going to do, like, and that comes back to comfortability. And then also, like, what my passions and interests are at the time. What, what are my, like, mm-hmm. hyperfix- like, hyperfixations? What are my special interests, like, you know so that's kind of a summary and then I have my staples because my sister's a stylist and she's taught me a myriad of tips and tricks to make a cohesive wardrobe so yeah Mm. it's just about playing around with it yeah I think fashion should be fun and it should be expressive like sometimes with the capsule wardrobe um like rhetoric or articles Mm. they can be so depressing sometimes it's like you have five shirts and two trench coats and like I get that's good for sustainability but then sometimes it's like you want to you know wear all silver jewelry or sometimes you want to like wear bright colors mm. and that's fine like you should be able to um express yourself and like see the world through fashion so Maggie and I are big advocators for that yeah oh no I actually I love that and and something I've learned you know from 
the sustainability it's not a movement but sustainability in fact in the fashion industry sort of being at the forefront of a lot of my social media over the last couple of years is you know how how to be more sustainable and I think for me I also hated the capital wardrobe concept because I hated having to put away clothes that I might want to wear one Mm. day so something that I've come to do is put away like for example if it's like summer or spring I'll put away all of my heavy coats and stuff packed down in like vacuum sealed bags so like they're out of my eyes because I'm not going to wear them and then I have this rack and a wardrobe in my bedroom which is like separate to where most of my closet is and I will curate a wardrobe for myself out of like specific pieces or I'll put together whole outfits even and I'll put them out and then I give myself a month and if I you know by the end of the month I do another capsule wardrobe like a micro capsule wardrobe for myself um, and it puts a little bit of fun out of it and yes you do need time to do it but I think it's really helped yeah. me make sure to wear clothes it's helped me realize what I'm not wearing and then you know donate or, or resell and I think that's how I've sort of began to become more sustainable for sure oh, person mm. after our own hearts we're all about <laughs> you know sustainability can sound so scary yeah but literally all it is is wearing your own clothes that's all we're asking for yeah. and, you know finding joy in your clothes and finding newness in that so love that advice I think that's something that everyone I mean yes like you mentioned there's time involved but you know anyone can kind of use that kind of theory into their own lives Mm. I mean it doesn't have to be something impossibly scary it's just looking at your clothes in a new way yeah yeah yeah. it's like you know picking out like okay I haven't worn these five pair of shoes because I like I don't collect shoes but I have like too many I have like 50 pairs of shoes it's it's not good but my shoe size my shoe size has not changed since I was 11 and I still have shoes that I wore at 11 years old because I look after them and so yes I have 50 pairs of shoes but it's Mm. been over 15 years like you know so yeah um but you know get out those five pair of shoes if you don't wear them in a month well then you got to really consider like why do you have them are they collector's piece and put them in a nice box and and look after them if they're not get rid of them yeah you know it's inspiring me to clean up my, my closet. <laughs> I'm going to go look at all my shoes now. <laughs> Have I worn you recently? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so changing gears a little bit, we're going to talk about sport. So from fashion to sport. Sure. But um, you have co-created and co-written um, a TikTok documentary called Trans Athletica that dives into the world of trans athletes in sport. And you also open up about your own uh, family's history with badminton. So we'd love to hear more about um, the process of Trans Athletica, how you got involved and your family history as well. Yeah, so Trans Athletica is a TikTok exclusive documentary funded by uh, Screen Australia as well as Snackdraw. You know, Snackdraw Studios, Snackdraw Productions, um, and it explores the unique barriers that trans people, trans and gender diverse people face trying to participate and succeed in sports. So um, that came about because of a, like a random conversation, like way before we sort of had a brainstorming session. I just randomly like mentioned to someone um, in the team, like, oh, like I used to play badminton, whatever. And they were shocked at how I had to stop playing because I was trans, like, because I was trans. Mm. And I didn't think anything of it because I'd sort of like retired and put it to bed. Like I was very traumatic. And at the time I didn't realize that there was a lot of feelings and um, trauma, not, not trauma that I'd experienced, but trauma just because of what it is. Um, 
that I hadn't sort of processed. And so I didn't think anything of it. And then months later, you know, we had a brainstorming session and, um, you know, we were, I think we we just covered the Olympics. I think we just covered the Olympics on Rainbow History class. And so Hannah and I were chatting and um, the concept of wanting to make it sh- like a, uh, as, as tangible a change or as tangible of a discussion that we could have or wanted to make um, in the area of trans participation and success in sport came up. And that's really how the idea of Transathletica was born and, um it, it was sort of set from the get-go in that, you know, I was a host and I was, was doing regular history class and things were picking up there and we, we wanted to develop my skills in that area. And, um, you know, I it, it was my story that, you know, we I wanted to tell, we wanted to tell, and then we also wanted to connect to the community and really find out what is being trans like in the sporting industry in Australia in particular. Um, and so, yeah, we worked on that documentary for about a year and a half by the time it was all released. And we did a huge month and a half of national press, which was incredible. And I truly never expected to be on national television um, during primetime breakfast television <laughs> talking about no. it. Um, but there I was. And, yeah, so that's kind of how it all happened and, and how it went down. But it was really difficult. Mm. Um, we had our filming and production week during one of the most horrendous weeks of the press mm. cycle for the um, election mm. in Australia. And yeah. it really rocked me. I mean, there was billboards rolling around Sydney. There was doxing on the internet. There was people, again, mm. on national programs just saying, like, bouts of misinformation. It was incredible. So, I mean, in a way it was sort of like serendipitous that we happened to be making Mm. this thing at this particular time in history. But um, it was very traumatic, I think, for us and me in particular. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And I feel like trans athletes in sports are like such a big talking point of like the fucked up culture Mm. wars that we have in this country and the globe at the moment. So that must have been like, yeah, so like you said, serendipitous of like, this joy mm. of creating something putting something like that into the world but then also having this other side of like a vitriol um, what was the response like from you know audiences and people who watched the documentary mm. look it was in, it was incredible like we had people who you know were from all across the world saying like thank you because no one's really talking about this no, no one as far as we know no trans people no no one who actually has lived the experience um has sort of done something like this in the way that we did it, in that, you know, we didn't just sort of myth bust. We actually spoke to people. And, and mind you, like, we had uh, numerous people say that they thanked us for, like, reaching out to them, but they would not participate because they could not risk their livelihood mm. or their, um, you know, their their well-being, their, their employment, speaking on a project like Transathletica. Um, so, you know, it was it was it was quite a defiant act to be part of the project and, and sort of have your story being told through it. Um, but the reception was incredibly positive. Um, it, it, I think, hopefully changed some people's lives. I mean, we had a beautiful premiere at the Victorian Pride Centre um, with thanks to, to Pride Cup who helped us put on the event. There was a lot of people in that audience who were friends, friends and sort of know, kind of know what being trans means but never really saw it through this, uh, like, this lens and, and this perspective and we played the the whole series start to finish so it was a preview screening and then we did a panel afterwards with um, some of the key 
um, storytellers of the story with um, me moderating it. And we had a lot of people um, who had their eyes opened. You know, we had some members of parliament and, and local kind of government government sectors there. And um, it was incredible. Like, I mean, I live this stuff, right? Like, and you would know with your own intersections, like you live it and you know what's going on and then you make this thing or you say this thing or you put something out there. Like I'm getting like goosebumps even talking about it, but like the second yeah. that someone who doesn't live that experience comes up to you and says like, I understand now, it's like my job's done and I, I it's like a shock to think that I, you know, that we did it so successfully, which is just like really all that you can ask for when you're a storyteller so yeah mm. sounds so rewarding yeah yeah I think it was I really want to do another series like a season or series um you know perhaps on like more global scale um but yeah we'll see we'll see how the year pans out that is so lovely to hear thank you for sharing I feel a little bit goosebumpy as well just hearing you <laughs> speak about it um and there is so much I think uh, for you to be proud about and so much that you've accomplished in the last few years. So we want to know as well, what are you proudest of yourself for? I think I'm proudest about sticking to my guns. Like, you know, I think it's really hard when you know something about yourself and what you think you're capable of doing, but it's another thing to actually commit to it. And you can see that in everything, like baking a cake, like making a really elaborate, like icing formations and, or sport, like, you know, actually shooting the hoop or kicking the goal. Like it's, it's one thing to know that you're capable of doing it. And it's another thing to actually follow through and commit to trying to achieve that goal. And I think given my track history, struggling to do that for like literally 80% of my life up until now, I'm really proud of myself for Mm. learning more about myself, for being patient. I'm proud of myself for making changes to my life that makes it more accessible and more accommodating to myself and for surrounding myself Mm. with people who understand or are willing to learn to understand. And that's not something I really ever thought that I would be able to do because I have always struggled with mental health, you know, obviously. And to find myself in a place where I have enough tools in my toolkit and I have enough resources and I've been privileged enough to be able to go through numerous amounts of therapy and counseling to find myself in a position now where I'm able to succeed. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I think it's a big, it's a big, it's a big ask and it's a big feat and, you know, it'll always be a journey, but you know, like I did it and I never thought I'd do it. So I, I, that's why I really don't think I'll ever take anything for granted because it, you know, it, it can slip away just as easy as it can come to you. So it's just about riding the wave, I think. And, and always being nice. Like, you got to be nice. Like, you just got to be nice to yourself. Agreed. Yeah. So, so nice. So nice to end on such a warm and fuzzy note. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's the thing. You got to, you got to, you got to do it. That's the thing. Never go to bed angry. Yeah. It's like you never go to bed yep. hating yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard. I feel like your next venture should be like, affirmations with Rudy like <laughs> just have to listen to that before I go to bed every night like yes thank you <laughs> oh my gosh I mean I never thought about that before I'm one of those people that uh really struggle with meditation and like positive thinking mm-hmm. um because I'm just like a, I don't know I describe myself as a reckless optimist or an existentialist mm-hmm. so I, I mean maybe maybe I could just spin it maybe I could be more truthful 
spinning yeah. it that way for sure. Yes. <laughs> Reckless Optimist sounds really cool as well. That's a that's a title right there. Thank you. I'm going to write that one down. Get that on a T-shirt. Yeah, write it down. <laughs> Yeah, it has honestly been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much again for joining Culture Club. Uh, For our listeners who can't get enough, where can they find you? And also, do you have any fun projects you can share with us um, that's happening um, in 2023? Yeah, so you can find me on all social media platforms at Rudy Jean Rigg. And you can find Rainbow History Class at Rainbow History Class on TikTok and Instagram. As for projects, if you're listening to this before the 4th of March, 2023, you can grab tickets to come and see Rainbow History Class live during Sydney World Pride in Sydney. But if you're listening to it afterwards, or maybe you don't feel like going to a live event, we have a Rainbow History Class book coming out, which you can pre-order or purchase now. And the audio book will be coming soon. So that's where you can catch our latest projects of Rainbow History Class. In terms of my personal ones, I think just stay tuned. You know, World Pride, there's a lot of rainbow <laughs> stuff happening. In terms of Rudy Jean Rigg, who likes to dress in black and spend more time playing video games, I think we're going to have to wait until after World Pride mm-hmm. to see what happens. But who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Zelda will be waiting. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like so much exciting stuff coming up. All right. Well, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much again. for your time today. No, thank you for having me on. I love what you both do, and I just think you're just angels here. So thank you so much. Oh.